wonder if you'd see the corruption for yourself if you worked inside the government? Well, wonder no more, because we have someone who did actually work inside the government and did see the corruption. And now he's running to be inside the government himself. Fascinating twist of events. We're gonna talk all about that right now with Muad Harizi. He's running for Congress in Connecticut's first district, that's US Congress. Muad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jake. Really excited to speak with you and to inform some of your viewers about the corruption when you see it from the inside. Absolutely, so I'm gonna get to that in a minute. But first, you have a number of amazing stories, including why you're obsessed with Medicare for all and what happened to you when you got a lung infection. So I really want people to hear that story. So, so tell us what happened. Yeah, so oftentimes people think that if you get sick in America, at the very worst, you go to the emergency room and you get taken care of. I had imagined that was how things worked as well. But at the age of 17, during the Great Recession of 2008, my mom had gotten really sick and she needed a surgery and we rushed her to the emergency room, saved her life, but ended up absorbing $20,000 of medical debt, even with good employer-based insurance and what people would tell you is good employer-based insurance. But I went to that same emergency room a couple weeks later, I had pneumonia, really bad pneumonia, didn't know it though. I couldn't breathe at all and instead of being treated, I was being interrogated over my parents' insurance information, whether I could pay off this $20,000 of medical debt. I was all by myself and unfortunately I couldn't pay it off. And so they asked me to wait in the ER waiting room for over an hour while I literally couldn't breathe at all. Uh, ended up collapsing, convulsing, nearly was gonna die. Uh, and then a team of about six doctors converged on me. And thankfully, uh, I'm still here to tell the story. But that's the harsh reality of our healthcare system. And it's what inspired me to get involved in politics. It's what inspired me to uh, really center my work around Medicare for all and uh, trying to do away with this profit hungry healthcare system that we have right now. Yeah, you know, that's almost exactly uh, the story that happened to Amy Villela's daughter. So she's also a progressive Democrat running in a primary. She's in Nevada and she was on the show just last week. And her daughter did die in a story just like that where they wouldn't take her because of insurance. So it's no joke at all or no exaggeration at all that you really could have died there because of privatized insurance. And one more thing about that, Maude, because when you see people on TV talking about, well, if we have Medicare for all, universal health care, single payer, we're gonna have long lines. How mad does that make you given that you actually nearly lost your life because of a line because of privatized insurance? Yeah, it's infuriating. Honestly, we can even do with the fact do away with the fact that there was a line. In my case, the emergency room was empty and it was just pretty much the fact that the hospital didn't want to treat me because they wanted to discriminate against the fact that I was low income and probably couldn't afford the expensive care that they were going to provide. So even with our current healthcare system, when we don't have lines, there's a gatekeeper, which is an insurance company and hospitals, administrative staff that don't let you get the care you need. But what I tell people is that we're the world's wealthiest country. We can we can definitely provide care to everyone at a high quality rate. We see other countries across the world doing it. Uh, and so there's no reason for there to be a line, but there currently is a line and that line instead of being based on medical necessity is based on wealth, which makes no sense at all. It's a completely backward system. No question, uh, Democratic consultants tell you not to put Medicare for all on your website. Uh, you're supposed to soften it and say universal health care, 
uh, or we we like health, that kind of soft stuff. Uh, but you do proudly declare that you're for Medicare for all. Uh, did anybody try to talk you out of it? Uh, honestly, we don't really talk too much to the typical consultants. So really talk to consultants in general. Uh, I think that the consultant class has gotten us in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, I just speak to voters and share my passion and vision with them. Uh, and I've dedicated my life to learning about our healthcare system. And it just makes a whole lot of sense to uh, reform our system to Medicare for all uh, single payer type system. Uh, and we're doing this all uh, jank in uh, the insurance capital of the world, which is Hartford, Connecticut. And, and so when we went here, uh, we're gonna prove to everyone that you don't have to water down your proposal when it comes to healthcare reform, that you should be bold, imaginative, uh, and you should you know, declare your, your values. And if you believe healthcare is a human right, uh, put the policy proposal that actually uh, shows that. And so we've had tremendous success even here in Hartford, Connecticut, people get it. Uh, health insurance is, is is just essentially a financial scheme built up by these big Wall Street uh, funds and, and it's just meant to provide a system that uh, keeps people away from the care they need. Yeah, so I, I will tell you this, if you win in the mecca of privatized insurance uh, running on Medicare for all, that will be a political earthquake. Uh, and and I know how well you're doing. We'll get to that in a second as well. But now let's go to the story that we promised. So you're in Connecticut. Uh, you go through this traumatic situation. You decide politics is the right answer. So you go uh, and and work at Senator Chris Murphy's office. What did you do there? And when did you start to get disillusioned? Yeah. So I, I was brought in uh, primarily for my healthcare background. I studied public health, and so I worked on his health policy team. And uh, Senator Murphy sat on the actual uh, health committee, which is the healthcare, the primary healthcare committee for the Senate. So I worked a whole lot on healthcare. Uh, worked on different issues as well, such as Social Security, uh, foreign policy, housing. Uh, but when I was there working on healthcare, uh, I started to get disillusioned. Uh, I, honestly, I, I kind of went into it knowing what the system was like. But I, what, what broke the camel's back is that uh, given the fact that we had a pandemic and I felt like you know Democrats had as much leverage as they were ever going to have to be bold and try to deliver. Uh, I just felt like we weren't meeting the moment at all. We weren't uh, taking a, a stand and even Democrats were fighting Bernie on things like $600 unemployment. Uh, and he was the only one who was willing to, to kind of draw a line in the sand and say that we shouldn't allow people to starve to death uh, during this pandemic. Uh, and so. At that moment, I realized uh, there was no way that we were going to get the change that we needed uh, with the current uh, political class. We needed uh, a new wave of of, uh, of elected officials who were actually going to, uh, you know, think big, think bold, and not be uh, beholden to corporate interest and corporate money, which uh, to me is the biggest uh, challenge that we face right now. So Mwad's not playing because his TikTok channel's at no corporate money. Uh, so <laughs> it's pretty clear that you're not taking corporate money. Uh, I'll give you that one. And uh, and so, but I'm, I'm curious, what did you see inside the senator's office? And Chris Murphy is not necessarily the bad guy or even a bad guy. He's just the typical United States senator. Uh, and so, um, you know, you talk about the system being rigged, but we see the results of that. But how does it get rigged in the first place? Yeah, so I can give you one example, um, and uh, th this is bigger than you know an individual senator or an individual you know House uh, member. It's a system that that's at play here. Uh, but uh, one example is there was this issue with surprise billing. Uh, so essentially, Wall Street realized that there was uh, weak regulations around uh, some health insurance laws, uh, and that what they could do is buy up a bunch of uh, emergency 
uh, emergency provider practices, and they can catch patients at their most uh, dire circumstances when they're visiting the emergency room, and that they can bill them out of network and charge them a whole lot of money. Uh, and their insurance company wasn't able to do anything to to stop that from happening because it was considered out of network. Uh, and so they found this loophole, Wall Street folks, and they started uh, buying up a bunch of these practices. And then Congress uh, realized what was happening and rightfully was uh, interested in stepping in. Uh, so. The Senate came together, we were finally gonna put together a proposal and it passed quickly out of the healthcare committee. But as soon as we started getting some momentum, Wall Street poured in a couple million dollars to to advertisements in some key states and all of a sudden Congress grinded to a halt. Not only that, a couple months later, Congress started, or the Senate I should say, started moving again. What ended up happening then is after Wall Street realized that money wasn't gonna be effective, they ended up donating a bunch of money to some key members on the House side this time. Uh, Richard Neal was probably the most prominent of which uh, they ended up uh, donating, I think it was uh, maybe $50,000 to his campaign uh, reelection committee. All of a sudden, Richard Neal has an epiphany that he now wants to come up with a new idea that stalls the entire uh, kind of process. And so now we have to wait again. Uh, what we end up realizing is that this new process is uh, is a process that favors uh, the Wall Street uh, folks who, who caused this problem to begin with, gives them a more favorable reform. Uh, and so what ends up passing is the one is the reform that favors Wall Street. So to kind of put this in a quick, you know, a summary, three thousand foot view, Wall Street rigs the system by finding this this practice that they can exploit. When Congress wants to step in, they pour a bunch of money to slow it down. Once they slow it down, they find the right members to target. They pour money into their reelection campaign committees. They get them to propose the idea that they prefer, and then they essentially buy out the rest of Congress and are able to actually get that policy that they want. And so now people are still paying more for the care that they receive because of this huge scheme and machination that Wall Street devised. So that's kind of how Congress works. It's a you know a soft corruption that that it pervades everything that happens there. Yeah, I don't think it's so soft. I think it's an open auction. Rich and Neil just takes bribes. They call them campaign donations, but they're bribes. And if you guys are wondering who's this awful Republican Richie Neal, nope, he's a Democrat. And he's one of the most corrupt members of Congress, and he is celebrated by Democratic leadership. He is in Democratic leadership, and he's of course celebrated and feeded by mainstream media. They love his corruption, they think it's savvy fundraising. So, Maud, you're also doing fundraising and in spectacular fashion from the grassroots. You've raised $420,000 last I checked. That is unbelievable. And that gives you a real shot at beating a 13 term incumbent, John Larson, in the race that you're running in Connecticut's first district. So, just real quick here before we run out of time, tell us your battle plan. How do you plan to beat an incumbent that's so entrenched? Yeah, and, and to put this race into context, uh, I'm running against the longest serving member of Congress without a primary challenge in the entire country. Uh, the incumbent, my opponent, has been in office since 1999, was elected in 98, never once been challenged. This is a Democratic stronghold district, uh, so virtually no accountability. And he's also the fifth highest recipient of corporate PAC money out of all the House Democrats. So that's the person we're challenging. We've taken a different route. No corporate money, like you said, we raised a ton of money. Our plan is simple. We know our message is popular. We've been knocking on doors, we've been talking to voters, and we're winning the majority of these decided Democratic voters who typically show up to the polls. And the message is simple. We're not gonna get anything done that we want money, this big structural change that we talk about, whether it's pharmaceutical prices, whether it's higher education reform, unless we get corporate money out of politics. 
And to assume that the person who's part of that problem is gonna fix it is just insanity. Uh, and so uh, voters get it very quickly when we inform them of these uh, kind of basic but highly important facts. Uh, and they they understand it's time for a change and uh, and they're excited to have uh, new blood in Washington. And so plan is simple, continue to build and mobilize this grassroots army that we've been preparing for months now. Uh, work hard uh, to get our message out there. And uh, you know, we, we know that as long as people hear our message that we'll win this election uh, and we, we expect you know uh, kind of the incumbent and, and folks to maybe start trying to uh, play some dirty games. But as long as we stay focused and our campaign stays focused on the message, I think voters are gonna be really excited about what we have to offer. Yeah, so I'll say one last thing to the audience. So mainstream media um, lies to you on a regular basis and they tell you, oh, incumbents are so important because they can deliver the goods for your district, right? Well. Uh, it's been 26 years that Larson's been in that district. How's that working out for you? Uh, do you guys have Medicare for all? Do you have universal health care? Do you have $15 minimum wage? Do you have voting rights? You don't have any of those, do you? Isn't it weird how the mainstream media actively lies on behalf of establishment Democrats? How does it help to have an incumbent Democrat in an office like that? I've never seen it help. All it does is it helps them stuff their pockets full of corporate cash. You know Mwad's on a level, his handle on TikTok, like I said, is at no corporate money. He almost died because of the corruption, and so obviously it's personal to him. His website is herezi.com, that's H-R-E-Z-I, H-R-E-Z-I.com. Obviously, if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook, we'll have the Links in the description box and you can volunteer, donate, etc. Maude, thank you so much for joining us, we appreciate it. My pleasure, thanks for having me. No problem. You ever wonder what it's like to talk to the leader of one of the most far right organizations in America? Someone who led an insurrection? I do. Well, our next guest, Mike Giglio, actually did that. So he's a reporter, he wrote this story in The Intercept. He's got a book called Shadow of the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate. But I wanna talk to him about his discussion with the leader of Oath Keepers. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I'm surprised by a lot of things. So they feel betrayed by Donald Trump, I wanna get to that in a minute. But Mike, I can't help but ask, how'd you get the interview in the first place? I mean, this guy's massively right wing. Why did he trust you to do this series of talks with him? Um, so I, I've been talking to the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, for a couple of years now. And you know, the first time I reached out to him, I was actually doing an investigative piece for the Atlantic. Um, so I actually started our you know, conversations by letting him know that I had like a leaked database of his membership roles. And was doing a story, and we we just kind of like took it from there. So, you know, I've been talking to him on and off um, since like January 2020, and at this point, it's like you know, I, I think we just we just have a long running conversation, you know, based mm-hmm. on that article. Yeah. Okay. So I happen to think he's nuts, but um, but he went to Yale Law School, so that's kind of interesting. Like, did his dad go there, or is he actually a bright guy who lost his mind at some point? He he is a bright guy, and you know he is also kind of like this bootstrap story where you know he grew up um, just completely divorced from that world and didn't even start going to school until he was in his mid twenties and he started with community college um, and then you know went to UNLV and did really well there and then and then got into Yale. Um, but yeah, he, he that that was definitely kind of like I think he was. 
probably first in his family to to go through all that um, so, university yeah. track. So relatively bright guy, uh, and got to a better law school than I did, uh, and um, and it's it, and like you say, he's not legacy or anything like that. So tell us what Oath Keepers is and uh, and what they're charged with on January sixth, so we get a sense of the context before we get into who he is. So the Oath Keepers are one of the largest, if not the largest, militant groups in the country. They've been around since 2009. Um, they say that their mission is to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and they kind of crib uh, openly the, the oath that soldiers and police swear to the Constitution when they serve. And they, and they do recruit um, among the police and the military uh, communities. So they say they're nonpartisan. Yeah. Um, in reality, in in especially in the Trump years, they they have basically um, been full on in their support for Trump, um, and you know as you know they viewed it, you know if, whether they want to admit it or not, you know they they thought that Trump was the first time that they really had like an ally in the White House, um, and so January sixth was an extension of that. You know they um, Stuart Rhodes put himself forward publicly. As a defender of Trump, as uh, and he was he was hoping that even that Trump would call up the Oath Keepers and other irregular groups like this on the militant right to help overturn the election and call a new one. That was what he wanted to happen. And so they were there on January 6th, uh, by their own telling, at least, in case the president called on them, which is uh, which I, which as I put to to Rhodes is a pretty frightening thought. Um, and they're charged with seditious conspiracy uh, because some of the Oath Keepers, not Rose himself, but a lot of his members, uh, I think around a dozen, um, allegedly breached the Capitol as part of the riot. And so they're charged with conspiracy for that. Okay, um, so I want I want to get back to their sedition in a minute uh, and, and how they feel betrayed by Trump. Uh, but um, I, I'm most curious about what is the core of their belief? Right. My guess is that if you call them racist, they would say nonsense. Um, obviously, they're not progressives, right? But they claim to be nonpartisan. That's interesting. So, what are they so mad about? You know, they have a belief system that says, like, the Constitution is, is being violated and we are in danger of a tyrannical government in the United States. And the way that they see that government taking shape. Is a liberal-oriented government, right? Like their 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 number one concern when they talk about the Constitution, is Second Amendment. So they're they're very concerned about gun control, um, and Rose in particular. You know the way that he's portrayed the threat facing America, that the you know the threat foreign and domestic that the Constitution needs to be protected against, is like a subversive uh, liberal order. You know, so so they are. No, they're, I don't know. Uh, like you know, so I, I, I mean, you know, this is this is part of the. If you if you've listened to Trump and his allies talk in 2020 about social justice protests being, you know, an insurgency and an attempt to undermine Trump and part of a Marxist conspiracy, you know, against America, that's the belief system that that Rhodes falls into. So and that's what I mean when I say subversive left, as they portray it. So, Mike, here's the thing, right? So, I actually think that, and I've said this a million times on the show, we could actually get along with the right wing if they just bothered to look up for a second on at least economic issues. 
So uh, is the government rigged? Yes, the government is rigged. Who rigged it? Well, just follow the money. They're the people who bought all the politicians, how they buy them through campaign donations. They give them millions of dollars and then the politicians work for them. And who has all the money? Uh, the corporations do. And they buy the politicians. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. So I'm curious if you guys had a conversation about that. And and if you said maybe maybe it's not the Marxist, maybe it's the other guys, the guys who have all the money uh, that are giving the bribes to the scummy politicians who are uh, rigging the system against you. Have they never considered that? I mean, so that's the I don't get it. He goes to Yale Law School and is he that dumb that he never thought of that? I mean, I think if you took away like the pejorative language about it, like he he does. You know, they would agree with you on that. Like that's 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 the same way that they portray American politics. And I do push them on that idea that, you know, <laughs> there are plenty of people on the left that would agree with the assessment that there is a a corrupt elite that control American politics. It's just not exactly the way that you see it. And Trump, as the left would see it, would be a part of the problem. Can't you see that? And you know, they um you know, Rhodes himself, because he is very attuned to American politics, he would like to say that the, the left had it right about the 1%. He says to me all the time in interviews. Um, and, you know, he, he, he kind of skews it, you know, in his own version of what you just said, which is the left and the right see the same enemy. We just, we're just not understanding who's really at the top of it. No, but I mean, look. So, the reason so I, I so use I, it, I do think I think you're I think you're honest something on that though. You know that that and that is something that that as you you know you're obviously based on your own correct analysis and reporting. Like that is a sentiment that is shared across the right. That 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 does echo a lot of what's shared across the left. So that's really important. I think that that eventually progressives can win elections on a mass scale because of that. But. But Mike, it's hard not to call them pejorative names, and and I know you got to talk to them, etc. And I'm sure you have some professional relationship. No, I'm just saying he would. I'm just saying they would hear your message if you didn't say that. that that's what I'm saying. Like he no, would agree with what no, you just no, said, no, aside no. from that I, bit I, about him being dumb. Mike, I actually don't agree with that. A bunch of Democrats kiss their ass and say like, "Oh my God, we have to respect the right wing and stuff." If Stewart was here, I'd say, "Hey, dumb dumb, what the hell does capitalism have to do with Marxism?" <laughs> what? What? And yeah, and yeah, no, no. I just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. All, all I meant by that was just like, obviously, they wouldn't agree with you calling them that, but the rest of it, you know, in their own words, they would agree with. Obviously, you saying it, maybe they probably, they probably find a million ways to pick bones with it. Yeah, it's just the right wing is so frustrating. How could the biggest capitalist in the world be Marxist? Please just look into logic, look it up in the dictionary or something. Jesus Christ. Anyway, so that's why I'm so fascinated by your interview. Uh, okay, but we got to get to uh, how he felt betrayed by Trump. Again, how am I not going to call him a dumb? He who didn't know Trump was going to betray you? Come on. So, but why does he think that he he was betrayed? What he had told me was, and which is in the article, which is in the Intercept, is that um, you know Trump, as we all know, went out publicly saying that the election had been stolen and then gave that speech on January 6th saying, if you march down to the Capitol, I'll be there with you. And as as, uh, as Rhodes put it in the interview, just ghosted and didn't show up at his own party. Um, and as, as Rhodes felt when I was speaking to him, you know, these, uh, all the people that kind of took that seriously, the idea of the election had been stolen and, you know, went down to the Capitol trying to do something about it. 
were, as he put it again, this is this is just his. This, I'm just telling you what he told me. It's, yeah. Is that they were left out to dry by Trump, um, and you know he mentioned Trump didn't even pardon anyone on his way out of office, didn't do anything for their legal offense defense. Um, you know that that's that that was kind of like the the way that he portrayed the them you know the betrayal by Trump. Yeah. Like this this uh, you know the people that had showed up the Capitol. Yeah, of course Trump was going to do that. Trump is sitting at $200 million that he raised for legal defense. Hasn't given a penny to anyone's legal defense on January 6th. That's because, hey, Stuart, he's a con man. That's what we told you. We were right and you were wrong. So now I say that to Stuart, Stuart, who's in prison. And although, is he out on bail right now? He has been denied bail. Okay, so he's and in, he's I, w- in I would I would point people to a very interesting report that came out after my own by BuzzFeed saying that Sidney Powell has reportedly, according to BuzzFeed, funded some of the defense of some January 6th defendants, including potentially Rose himself, which happened after he was arrested, which is after I spoke to him. Yes, Sidney Powell did, but not Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump. Exactly. Yeah. Donald Trump wouldn't even fund Rudy Giuliani's defense. He's such a monster. So, how, however much you think the Oath Keepers are terrible, and I think far right, militant, and potentially violent, and 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 they carried out that violence on January 6th, so it's not potential anymore. Group is less dangerous than a monster like Donald Trump. Anyways, one more thing, and I wish we could talk about this for hours, but. And everybody check out Mike's report at The Intercept called The Lonely Revolutionary. It's really interesting. So when you point out, okay, so Trump wasn't the guy. In his vision, what happens where they win, right? And and when they, like, how do they win and what do they win? In Rhodes' vision? Yeah. What? I, I can tell you what, what what the win would have been like in 2020, uh, because he put this out there publicly and he said it to me in interviews, which is Trump would have invoked the Insurrection Act, called up irregular forces, including the Oath Keepers, as a militia to help put down any resistance to this move, nationalize the National Guard, federal, excuse me, federalize the National Guard, and throw uh, called an entirely new election on. Uh, on different terms than the one that we had. And you know, obviously that is an extremely frightening prospect. So Dum Dum doesn't realize that that ends democracy. Like he's like, oh, I'm gonna hear to protect democracy. So we're gonna protect it by ending it and having a vigilante justice and military rule. He just doesn't get that. I think it's important to understand that, you know, Rose himself, the Oath Keepers represent a much larger part of the American right. And that they have convinced themselves that what they were doing on January 6th and what they continue to do, you know, and all the efforts that are related to that is defending democracy. And that, that they are actually somehow defending it. Like we, you know, yeah. that's the belief. And like that's that's what that's what the country is up against. Well, I mean, it's, it's the most ironic thing in the world, but that's exactly what the American empire said as we did imperialism. You have to you know destroy the village in order to save it. So I guess Stuart Rhodes thought you have to destroy democracy in order to save it. Super ironic that he would agree with the American government on that. And lastly, did you ever bring up to him, hey, Trump and your side lost 60 cases in a row, never presented one piece of evidence that the election was stolen. Does that 
or it's all a conspiracy, right? It's all conspiracy. All the Trump judges, everything's a conspiracy. The only person who knows is Stuart Rhodes. That's my outsider view. But you talk to him. Is that his sense of it? I think I think you know that like this segment of the population, that that's not an argument that holds water. You know, they have they have all kinds of places that they go. Um, you know, and <laughs> mentally to say, well, the cases weren't heard fairly and, and all that. So, I, and, and this is not anything that's surprising, but that that's not an argument that, that works. Yeah, I know, facts are not a thing that works with these guys. Um, to all the right wingers, look up, look up. The guy robbing you isn't the guy with no power, it's the guy with all the power. And it's corporate executives that are giving money to politicians. It isn't some rando Marxist that has no money and no power. God, they're so frustrating. But it's a really interesting set of interviews. Again, the piece is called The Lonely Revolutionary. Mike Giglio, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. No problem.